If you're visiting with us this morning, we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order, and everywhere we turn, it's a blessing, including this morning. While we're turning there, be aware that the new daily breads are out in the literature racks, out in the fellowship hall, and assorted other places around the church, and help yourself to one of those uh, today. Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 13. Then one from the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. There goes the collapse of the whole American economy. And then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? And so he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat. Drink and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. And then whose will these things be which you have provided? And so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you as we do so often for how it cleanses our lives, how alive it is to feed our spirits, Lord how it brings perspective to us when we're on this pilgrimage and we acknowledge we're very far from home and so we like to hear news from how heaven looks at all the things that we're surrounded day in and day out. And We pray, Lord, as we study your word this morning that it would, wouldn't come forth just in word only but in demonstration of the Spirit and in power, Lord, not in my ability to speak, but in that beautiful way that you give witness to your word in our hearts and the way that you help us to hear your voice from your scriptures. And we pray that each one of us would hear you this morning. Pray for that work of your spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. It is interesting as we find ourselves here kind of jumping into the middle of of chapter 12 here. By the time we address this incident between Jesus and a man and then it expands out to involve the multitude or people that he's uh, teaching there, we're told at the very beginning of the chapter in verse 1 that Jesus, the context of everything, is that Jesus is teaching a very large group of people. And they are gathered around him. So many of them, they threaten to trample one another. So this is a gigantic crowd. And when you have that size of a crowd, and you have a crowd that is threatening to trample one another, you've got a crowd where people are trying to make their way closer to whatever the center of the attention is. And Jesus is the center of the attention. Not only is it Jesus, but what he's teaching. This is a crowd that is very eager to hear what Jesus has to say about spiritual things. 
And the subject matter that Jesus is dealing with as he's teaching them is very, very sobering. I'm very strong what he's teaching. And he's warning them against the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He's teaching them how to handle persecution, even when it becomes life-threatening. He's speaking to them about the need of the fear of God, also things concerning the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I mean, these are eternal truths that he's declaring to them, truths that are going to outlive the heavens and the earth. So it's a very sober kind of assembly that's there. The people are eager to hear what Jesus has to say. And then in verse 13, suddenly someone out of the crowd blurts out a question to Jesus. That doesn't have a single thing to do with what he's talking about. Not only does it not have anything to do with what he's talking about, it isn't even spiritual. Not only is it not spiritual, it is patently carnal and selfish, the question that he asks. Notice what it is. Teacher, as a demand actually, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now imagine interrupting the teaching of Jesus for any reason. I mean, even when we're in a conversation with one another, to interrupt another person is one of the rudest things we can do in life. But here is Jesus engaged in this act of teaching, and the people are all around are wanting him to continue to do exactly that, and yet without any sense of context or any sense of the atmosphere that he finds himself in the middle of, he takes and, and interrupts Jesus and not only interrupts him, not to ask some spiritual question about what he's teaching, but he interrupts Jesus with a demand that Jesus order his brother to divide the inheritance with him. So we're dealing with a will. And as somebody has said, where there's a will, there's a lot of relatives. Some of you have dealt with that. <laughs> now what this is probably about is that when the father would die in a family, the oldest son would receive two-thirds of the inheritance. And then the other son or multiple sons would receive one-third of a portion. So what you probably have here is a younger brother who has not yet received his one-third portion from his, his older brother. And he's feeling frustrated by it and feels that he's going to need Jesus to order him to, to do it. Now Jesus' response to the man, notice in verse 14, Jesus said, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? I, I, I mean, I read all of Jesus' statements in the Bible and all, and this, this one is one of the most... I never want him to call me man. I mean, there's something about what has happened here that is literally an affront to Jesus in terms of what this man has done. It's a very, very strong reaction on Jesus' part. And clearly Jesus refused to get involved in this man's dispute over his inheritance. He didn't come into the world to become a lawyer, an arbitrator between people that are trying to settle an estate after the death of a parent. came into the world to save the whole wide world of our sins and to forgive us and to provide a way for us to enter into heaven one day. Jesus then, after he rebukes the man here, he then turns to the crowd in verse 15 and says, Take heed. And beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. And this is a very, very strong warning by Jesus against the sin 
of covetousness, which Jesus recognized to be at the base of this man's demand. He recognized this to be the motive behind this, this man's demand. When he says, take heed, he speaks to the crowd here. I mean, it's like, listen to me very carefully. What I'm going to tell you right now is super important. And then he uses the word beware. Literally, take and, and set a guard up between you and this thing that I'm going to identify to you in just half a sentence. He said, beware of covetousness. Now, given the strength of Jesus' reaction to this thing called covetousness, the thing that... The question that raises in my mind is, what in the world is covetousness? Whatever it is that he feels this strongly about in a negative way, I want to, number one, know what it is, and then, number two, avoid it in my life. And so, what is covetousness? Well, covetousness can be defined as greed. It can be defined as a discontentment, which is the opposite of, of contentment. The Greek word literally means to have more. A covetous person always wants more. No matter how much they have, no matter how much they get, no matter how much they attain to, how much they obtain and possess, they always want more. And so that's what covetousness is. My favorite definition for covetousness is the ungodly or the non-God-given desire for more. Now, God can give us a desire for more. Uh, there's nothing wrong with ambition in the Bible. The Bible uh, condemns a, a carnal ambition, selfish ambition, but doesn't de de uh, uh, denounce an ambition for God, an ambition for the advancement of the things of God. So here you, have, uh, here you have a desire for more that doesn't come from God. It is when the master passion of my life becomes the desire for more material things, where the accumulation of material things becomes more important to me as a Christian than the spiritual. It becomes more important to me than the advancement of God's kingdom through His purposes in my life and the advancement of His kingdom through my giving. And that's precisely what's happened in this man's life. No man who has, has a, a sense for what proportion at all is going to interrupt the sermon of Jesus and talk about money or talk about things. This is a covetous man for whom the love of material things is his master passion. It is more important to him than, than to God. And, and so that's what, he, that's what it is. And that can be money. It can be the things that money can buy. Uh, it can also include position. It can include power. And Jesus defines it as thinking, this covetousness, the thinking that life consists in the abundance of our possessions. The person that says, my life is successful, my life is this, my life is that, they base their life on, on, uh, and come to the conclusions on the basis of the material possessions that they have, the success uh, of their life. That's the belief system behind covetousness. Covetousness is a religion. And you have to operate by faith in that religion. 
And the main tenet of the religion of covetousness is that one day I will buy that certain thing or one day I will have this certain amount in my retirement or in my bank account and at that point I will cease to be covetous. That's what it, that's what it preaches. There's nothing to put our faith in. And so Jesus defines it as that thinking that life consists in the abundance of the things that a person possesses. But he said it, life doesn't consist in the abundance of the things that we possess. And so he says, be on your highest guard against greed. Because you'll never find purpose in life. You'll never find meaning in life. You'll never find satisfaction in life. You will never find contentment in life. Tells the whole crowd, tells us here today. Never going to find those things in the accumulation of material things. Okay. Well, where do I find satisfaction? Where do I find contentment? Where do I find peace and fulfillment? Where do I find meaning and purpose in life? I like how the Apostle Paul put it in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. He said, but godliness with contentment is great gain. These things are found. The meaning and purpose in life, satisfaction, contentment, peace are found in having an obedient, personal relationship with God and then being content with what He chooses to add to my life materially out of that relationship. That's a person that's rich in life. That's a person who has discovered the meaning of, of life and satisfaction in life. The Bible is filled with examples of men who have ruined their lives through covetousness. I think about Jacob's uncle Laban. I mean, for those of you who know him in the Old Testament, Jacob, the great, one of the great patriarchs of the nation of Israel, the twelve tribes of Israel came from his loins, his twelve boys. But he was a heel catcher, con man, manipulator, and God said, I know how to get that out of your life. I'm going to put you close to one that is a bigger con man than you are. Your uncle Laban. So he goes off and and uh, to be with his uncle Laban, and his uncle Laban tries to rip him off every way you can try and rip a guy off. But this is family. And Laban is just dominated by covetousness. Family ties don't matter. What it looks like to other people doesn't matter. What it looks like to his family, to his servants, none of that matters. What matters is he's got to get ahead in every single deal he's involved in. He's got to win. And you read Laban's life, and it's just an ugly, ugly life. The kind of guy that you look and say, when, when that funeral comes around, Nobody's there. Somebody just out of pity sends flowers to that service. It's a very sad life, the life of Laban, because of his covetousness. I think about Achan, who when Joshua and the children of Israel went in to possess the land of Canaan, the promised land, God had said that Jericho was the first fruits of the land, all of the spoils of Jericho belonged to the Lord. Everyone was warned. And Achan went in and, 
as they were taking the city, he took and, and saw a beautiful Babylonian garment. He saw some shekels of silver and a wedge of gold. And the Bible says in his own words, Achan said, I coveted them and I took them. And, uh, uh, and God severely judged him as a result of his uh, covetousness and robbing God as a result of it. I think about Gehazi, the servant of Elisha. You see, I'm too spiritual to succumb to covetousness. Gehazi was a very spiritual man, a servant to perhaps the most spiritual man alive at the time, a man prophet by the name of Elisha. And a man by the name of Naaman comes over from Syria. He's a leper. He's a great general in the Syrian army. And he's been told that there's a God in Israel that can heal him of his leprosy. And ultimately, in his contact with Elisha, he dips down seven times in the Jordan River, comes up out of it, and he's cleansed of his leprosy. And he tries to reward Elisha with a great wealth for, you know, being the man that told him to do this and the man that God had used that had produced his cleansing of his leprosy. And Elisha didn't want a penny because he knew it would confuse in the mind of of Naaman and think that he did it rather than God who did it. And so Naaman begins to make his way, couldn't, couldn't give a penny to Elisha, begins to make his way back to Syria. And Gehazi looks and sees him heading off into the horizon. He says, look at all that wealth that my master turned down. And secretly he ran after uh, the, the, the great general, Naaman, and he said, my master's had a change of mind. We've had some new students come into the school of, of ministry here, the school of the prophets, and uh, I need a couple of uh, changes of clothing and, and some shekels of silver from you. And, and Naaman was happy to give it to him. And so Gehazi, thinking he's been able, out of this covetousness, he's been able to secure some secret wealth for himself. And ultimately, of course, the Lord revealed it to Elisha and he was smitten with leprosy for the rest of his life as a result of it. You could go on and on with these examples. But I think perhaps the greatest example in the Bible, in all of the Bible, concerning the power, the dangerous power of covetousness, is Judas Iscariot, who sold out the Lord that we've been worshiping this morning, sold out Jesus, for 30 crummy pieces of silver. After all he had seen, after all he had heard, after all he knew about Jesus, the power of covetousness so great upon his life, he would be willing to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. I think it's important for us as Christians to realize that covetousness is sin. Let me read you a few verses on this. The tenth of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 condemns covetousness. Moses' laws, Moses said, You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, that's his car, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 22. A man with an evil eye hastens after riches and does not consider that poverty 
will come upon him. The fact of the matter is, more often than not, greed leads to poverty, not to riches. Much more often than not. You know, we've got this saying in the culture today, he who has the most toys wins. That is a sure prescription for wasting a life and even destroying a life. Ecclesiastes 5.10, Solomon wrote and said, He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. That's the conclusion of King Solomon, the richest man in the history of the Bible. He made gold such a common thing that was used. Solomon was the son of King David, the third king of the nation of Israel. He made so many drinking utensils and eating utensils and plates and cups and all kinds of things, much less his building projects. He made so much stuff out of gold that silver was regarded as rock in Israel. You bring somebody a beautiful silver gift. What's this silver? You're insulting me. I mean, that's how, that's how wealthy... Uh, Solomon was and yet he comes at the end of his life and says to all of us spare yourself the aggravation there's nothing to be found at the end of the road of materialism or of covetousness the Bible says that covetousness can even destroy families and marriages and we see it all the time don't we Proverbs chapter 15, verse 27, He who is greedy for gain troubles his own house. You see how many houses and families are destroyed by covetousness. Covetousness can even lead to murder, the Bible says. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They look secretly for their own lives. And so are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. From the New Testament, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul wrote, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication. Yes, ooh, terrible. Got to put that to death. We understand it. Uncleanness, talking about sexual uncleanness. Passion, yes. Evil desire. And, and then he says, and covetousness. Whoa. Paul, now you've gone from preaching to meddling. Put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which he said is idolatry. He said to engage in covetousness, the worship of material things, to make that the master passion of my life, he said that is the practice of a false religion. Peter wrote, I mean, uh, Paul rather wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Again, I'll fill out the verse that we read earlier. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Then he continued and said, For we brought nothing into this world except our little old naked self, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, uh, these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich, that's the passion of their life, They fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed even from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Wow! 
That's the power of it. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. Now, why, why, why spend the time? You say, listen, I hate it when preachers do this. Just give us one verse. I got it. God just needs to tell me one time. You don't have to read 15 verses on this stuff. How many of you were aggravated? Just a quick show of hands. Just kidding. So why bother with that? Why bother with heading through the living word, the cleansing word, the perspective-giving word in that way? The reason is, is that in this culture that we live in, we tend to overlook the seriousness of the sin of covetousness because it has such a dominant influence not only in our culture but even upon the church and is attempting to have a dominant influence upon each one of our lives. And its influence is so strong, its desire to dominate our lives is so strong that over time we can tend to become accepting of covetousness. We would denounce all manner of sin. We would hate to be known for it. We would hate for people to look at it and see in our lives. But we can become accepting uh, of this. Much of our, as I mentioned in the scripture reading, our national economy is built upon covetousness. Indeed, a great deal of our economy depends on covetousness in people's lives. You think about how that covetousness is nurtured in the culture. Virtually every advertisement in the culture, not all of them, but most of them are intended to, number one, provoke a dissatisfaction in our life with what we have and who we are and what we are. And then the second thing that it does is to then follow that dissatisfaction that it's produced within me with the temptation to believe that what this person or this product is offering me now will come, if I, if I buy it, then I'll be satisfied. This is something that I'll find the ultimate meaning in life, you know. And so it plants that covetousness inside of our heart in order to make us want to buy it. And it's always a bigger, better this or that, a newer this or that, whether it's a home or whether it's a car, whether it's an appliance or it's toothpaste or televisions or cosmetic surgery today. Think about I'm not going to get into it. <laughs> Talking about elective cosmetic surgery. And there's this literally constant barrage of messages telling us we're just their product away from experiencing satisfaction in life and contentment in life. In fact, the sin of covetousness is so powerful that it can cause a person to completely waste their life completely misspend their life, which is the whole lesson and warning that Jesus is trying to get across through this parable of the rich fool. And let's notice the parable for a couple of minutes. There is a rich man, verse 16, and it's important to note, he is already rich. He's already rich. And he's become richer still by virtue of a bumper crop that has come in that year. So there's a rich man who's become even richer. His dilemma, verse 17, is that his existing barns are already full. 
So where is he going to store the excess of this new harvest that is going to come in? Where is he, what's he going to do to accommodate this great increase in wealth that has occurred at, at this point in his life? His solution, verse 18, was to tear down his existing barns and build even greater barns. In other words, he's going to increase his ability to store uh, more wealth unto himself, to amass more wealth unto himself. And the thoughts of the man are recorded there in, in verses 17 through 19. And, and the, as he's thinking to himself, those three verses filled with no less than 11 occurrences of I and my. No thought of his fellow man, no thought of God, nothing of those kind of things. And, and, and the easier solution in the eyes of God for this, the problem of this man would have been to think, you know what, I have more than enough for, my, them, for myself. I am already rich. So instead of amassing even greater wealth unto myself, I'm going to direct this abundance toward the needy and toward God's work. But it never ever enters into his mind to do anything with his resources other than to hoard them to himself. Never, God never enters this person's mind. Never, another person never enters this kind of person's mind. And what his actions are are a testimony uh, of the point that Jesus is making here, and that is that covetousness can never be satisfied. It will always want more. It will always respond with the tearing down of existing barns and the building of greater barns. J.D. Rockefeller is reported to have been asked at the end of his life, tell me, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money does it take to satisfy a man? He said, just a little more. That's the fact of the matter. And if we allow our flesh to determine how much is enough, rather than allowing God to determine how much is enough materially for us, then the answer will always be, just a little more, and we're on the treadmill that will destroy us and wipe us out. And we look at this and we say, look at this. Described as the rich fool. What a, what a terrible person. What a, how could he? And, but the great question to ask ourselves here is, if we were in his shoes and the bumper crop comes in on top of all of the existing wealth, without, we know what the right answer is. But in the honesty of our own heart, what would we do? Would we redirect the resources toward others and toward God? Or would we do exactly as this man did, and that is find a, a way to a, a, accommodate a, a, a growing wealth here on things? I think it's very searching, searching for my life, I'll tell you. And so I think it's important on this this parable to realize that there's nothing in the parable that condemns a savings account or a retirement account, trying to save a little bit for old age in the life of a giving Christian. But this man is a man that's thinking only of himself. Now notice in verse 19 that because of his wealth, he assumes that he's got a very long, comfortable life out in front of him. I now possess more wealth than I could ever spend for the rest of my life. And notice, and it's very important, the highest purpose that he sees for wealth. 
The highest purpose that he sees for his accumulated wealth is uh, living a life of ease and eating, drinking, and being merry. So in his mind, he's done very, very well for himself, and he's very pleased with himself, very pleased with his decision-making. But God's assessment of him in verse 20 is that he is a fool. Now, God doesn't call a lot of people fool in the Bible. He calls this man a fool. So that gets my attention, too. The two reasons that Jesus gives for the fact that these are the actions and the attitudes of a fool is, number one, this man assumed that he had many, many long years out ahead of him when death was just right around the corner, just a day away. Number two reason, Jesus said, is that he was not a wise financial planner. He thinks he's a very wise financial planner. From the vantage point of heaven, God looks at it and says, that is not a wise financial planner. And the reason? The reason is because he handled his wealth in such a way that his death separated him from it completely. Let me say that again. The reason it's foolish is because he handled his wealth in such a way that his death separated him from his wealth completely. Upon his death, all of his wealth moved completely beyond his control and now came under the control of those that were left behind. And what Jesus is saying is that it is only during this life that we can lay up treasures in heaven. By sending money on ahead, so to speak, by, number one, giving to the poor, and number two, giving to the work of the Lord in the advancement of His kingdom in the world. Now, every time we give to one of those things, the Bible says, verse 34, verse 21, the Bible says we are laying up treasure or laying up reward in heaven that we will one day receive when we enter into heaven. I remember as a new Christian hearing a story in this vein that's always been helpful to me and, uh, and really given life to this truth for me. It was a story of a rich man who died and he went up into heaven and one of the angels there was given the responsibility of leading him to his new home up there. And uh, as the angel walked with him, they passed through one neighborhood where there were these great, gigantic mansions, the kind he was accustomed to enjoying in life, and he expected to be directed to one of those. And so they passed through that neighborhood, and they came into a lesser neighborhood, and he thought to himself, what is it? it isn't quite what I'm accustomed to, but I suppose I could make myself happy here. But then they passed beyond that neighborhood into another and then out of that neighborhood into another, and then out of that neighborhood and into another, until after some time they stood before what looked more like a shed than a house. And when he was informed that this was his house, the man immediately began to protest. And the angel silenced him with the words, Well, we did the best we could with what you sent ahead. Now that, that's powerful. When, when we stop and realize that one day 
based upon our handling of our resources here, one day each of us will be in that place. Once we pass beyond this life, we forever lose the control of our earthly wealth. We forever lose the opportunity to invest it in the things of God. And that is the truth that Jesus, that's something that Jesus wants every single one of us to give great consideration to. From the perspective of heaven, no one who leaves great wealth behind here while failing to send great wealth on ahead can ever be considered to have handled their resources in anything but a foolish fashion. The world would absolutely commend this man for his decisions and his choices, but in Jesus' own words, and he says, God calls them the decisions of a fool. I remember one time hearing a joke about a rich man in town who died, and as the people were gathered around the casket there in the cemetery, one man asked another man, how much did he leave? The guy said, all of it. And that's going to be the truth. Related to, from the heaven's vantage point, from Jesus' vantage point, evidently too many people do that. Now, who does this parable apply to? Verse 21, So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I like the living Bible on this. He said, Jesus, yes, every man is a fool who gets rich on earth, but not in heaven. Because ultimately that will be the only wealth that matters. And it's important, Jesus is saying here, that one's budgeting and financial planning and all of these kinds of things that we do in life, that it takes that into account so that we can live each day and say, I have the assurance that one day when I'm in heaven, I will be rich uh, there it's very important, too, to realize, I think, that this parable is directed to the entirety of the crowd, not just to rich people, because a person can be relatively poor and be the biggest miser in the whole world, be stingier than any rich person. Is speaking to every one of us. And this kind of thing that can be in each one of our hearts. And so the parable is not a parable about wealth. It's a parable about how wealth is directed by all of us. So again, Jesus warns us, verse 15, He said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And so may God use this passage to keep us from misspending our lives in the way that this rich fool did. And may God keep each of us from living a life that is rich toward ourselves but fails to be rich toward God and His priorities and His purposes in this world. It's a very strong rebuke from Jesus to this man. But I feel the rebuke and I like the rebuke. But the strength of the rebuke only speaks to the strength of the power of covetousness in our life and the strength of its destructiveness in our life. And Jesus knowing that and seeing it clearly day in and day out, even among his people in this world, spoke so 
forcibly against it in order to bring needed perspective into our lives, for which we give him praise. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for all of the reasons that you have included this passage in your word. And we thank you, Lord, that your word never returns void, but it accomplishes the purposes for which it was sent. And we as just a humble, simple group of your people here on planet Earth, we love you, Lord. We love walking with you. We love serving you. We pray, Lord, everything that this passage is intended to do in each of our lives, that it would do that. And so we commend, Lord, this passage to the continued work of your Holy Spirit in each one of our lives as you continue to fashion us into the image of Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for your teaching to our hearts today. And we thank you in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen.